On today's episode of the Data-Driven Podcast, Frank and Andy interview Brian Bois, Director of Industrial AI at Rovesis. In the 90s, Andy worked extensively in this space. This is a great conversation and a fine way to close out Season 6. Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging fields of data science, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. With me, as always, is my favorite data engineer, Andy Leonard. How's it going, Andy? <laughs> it's going well, Frank. How are you? I'm doing all right. Did I botch up the intro or or what? No, you did. Uh, we did a recording yesterday so where I had people to... were listening, and you you threw in data engineering. I think at the end, and I was excited. Right. You know. Oh, well, I, I, <laughs> we should change that. I need to um, re-record that. And maybe I should listen to the audio book that the guest recommended, which was Atomic Habits. That's true. So that was, that was a good that recommendation. Yeah. That was a great recommendation. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and um, with that, I will introduce our guest. Uh, Brian Dubois or Dubois, um, and he is director of industrial AI at Rovesis. Industrial AI is a term that uh, we're hearing more and more about, so maybe we can ask him about that. And he's actually been at this company for going on 23 years, so which is just phenomenal in this day and age where job hopping is kind of the norm, honestly. Right. So yeah. welcome to the show, Brian. How's it going? Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, excited. And yeah, as you mentioned, uh, 23 years of Rovesis. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where if you find a good company and, and they're good to you, then you, you kind of stick around for a long time. And so we've got it. We've got a good thing going there, good culture. And so it's it's been fun. That's cool. That's cool. So uh, tell us a little bit about Rovesis. Like, what are they and like, how'd they get started? And um... yeah. Yeah. So started in eight, uh, 1989. Um by a gentleman uh, named John Robertson. Um, and we are a system integrator uh, that is uh, exclusively focused on manufacturing and industrial customers. So we work in a space um, called OT or operational technology. Uh, it's a term Gartner coined years ago, basically to, you know, everyone knew what IT was. And so they needed a new term to define kind of what, what happens within the plant walls. And so that's, that's that OT term. And so we are an OTSI is what we typically refer to ourselves as. Um, and so been around for, yeah, 30, 30 plus years, um, uh, started out on the plant floor doing controls automation. And we still do, that's still a huge part of our work, PLCs, DCSs, uh, migrations of existing control systems, SCADA, HMIs. But then probably around 20 or so years ago, we really started to invest in information solutions and, and information systems and really started to expand our, our footprint into um, into that layer, which involves things like historians, um, manufacturing ex execution systems, um, data collection, and all the things that we'll be talking about today, um, the interesting things that you can do with data that's coming up off the plant floor. That's interesting. Um, I know Andy's got a lot to say about this. Um, so for most, I think, people, the term SCADA was unaware to them uh, until uh, there was an issue with the Colonial Pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> um, so can you just explain what a, what a SCADA is? And I'm sure that'll we can dovetail into a security conversation at some point. 
Sure, sure. I mean, so on the plant floor, you have um, a control system that that effectively operates, you know, the um, the equipment on the plant floor and typically coordinates all of the, the movement of product through pipes and things like that. Now, in the case of, of Colonial Pipeline, of course, they're a pipeline company, so they're not making things, they're just moving product. Um, and Colonial is one of our customers, but um, so they're they're moving product through it, but they're using the same controllers and uh, that that are used across the industry. Whatever you're making or doing, you're typically using you know uh, the same kinds of controllers. I mean, these controllers are effectively tiny computers, um, and they're you know they're programmed with a special kind of of uh, programming language called Ladder Logic. And then they're controlled by an upper level system that's called a SCADA. Um, in the case of, of CPC, I can talk um, a little bit about that. I can't get into too many details, but effectively they had a ransomware attack um, on the business network. Um, and so they that took down most of their business network. Um, the, the good news is, is that um, that never they never lost control of the pipeline. So mm -hmm. they actually were able to control the pipeline uh, because of good cybersecurity and networking practices where we, you know, where companies harden down um, the the manufacturing network, the plant control network, they were actually able to, to main control, uh, maintain control of the pipeline um, the entire time. But um, yeah, so that was probably that in Stuxnet around 2010, which was the first um, SCADA um, virus. Um, that one was a targeted attack on um, uh, an Iran company. Um, to actually uh, affect the enrichment process of, of uranium. Um, and so that was the first ever, in 2010, that was the first ever control system virus, a targeted virus uh, made to jump over an air gap. They had an air gapped network made to jump over the air gap and attack that particular process. So that really um, kind of, as you said, that those two events really kind of brought cybersecurity in the OT space to the forefront and had a lot of our customers scrambling. Around that same time, not coincidentally, Rovis has started an industrial networking group. So we actually have a group that then goes in. It's not my expertise, so that's about the extent of my cybersecurity knowledge is what I just described, <laughs> but um, that 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 group goes in and they do audits and they do you know hardening and 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 things like that. So. Well, that's good to hear because you always have like this this concern that you know are companies taking this seriously? Um, because all you hear about you hear about the breaches, right? Yes. You don't hear about the breaches that were stopped. Mm -hmm. um, so they definitely like, for instance, you know, they never lost control of the pipeline. I hadn't really right. thought of that. Like, I guess they didn't. They just right. they had other issues and right. And, you know, all all you know, all people tend to remember a very small fraction of things. Um, and they tend to remember the parts that affected them. For me, I remember sitting in line waiting for gas. Yes. Um, which the last time that happened, I think I was in kindergarten, and yeah. I remember my parents uh, using a selection of words yeah. to describe the situation. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, it's good to hear that they're they're doing that. And I guess that I mean, uh, you know, you mentioned Stuxnet. Um, you've been in the industrial technology space or OT. Um, for a number of time, you've probably seen a lot of change, haven't you? Yeah, for sure. Um, and so one of the one of the things that we typically talk about is ITOT convergence. So this started probably around you know five to seven years ago. And so this is this idea that um, you know the the tools, the techniques, the skills, IT wanted more control, um, the security principles, the governance um, was starting to push down from the IT level uh, into the plant floor. And for, again, for good reason. Like um, when I started my career, I mean, for better or for worse, 
it, it was kind of the Wild West uh, on the plant floor. If you needed connectivity, you threw a switch out there. Nobody was was programming that switch. No one was locking that switch down. You just threw it down on the plant floor and you hooked things up. I We didn't, but our customers would do that. If we said we needed, you know, if we needed connectivity to a piece of equipment, they go, oh yeah. And then, you know, they'd run to Best Buy and they'd get a switch and they'd just plug it in on the plant floor. So that was kind of the world that we lived in. Well, so for good reason, IT wanted to start to take control of that. On the other side of the coin, um, you know, OT was starting to, um, was starting to leverage some of these these tools and techniques that had originally come from IT. And so there was this convergence of the two. Um, there also was a need that was driving that from the enterprise, which continues to this day, where the enterprise wants access to the data that's on the plant floor. Um, they recognize that there's massive amounts of value in, in that data, but most of the time the plant floor has been a black box to them. They really don't understand what happens down there. They don't understand the type of data that we work with on the plant floor, and they don't know how to how to get access to it. And so um, that was another big driver of that convergence. Um, uh, and then I, I did a presentation years ago to talk about the drivers. The, the last one I'll, I'll point out was um, the influx of, of kind of the younger generation into the plant floor. Um, they're used to working with technology and apps and, and you know, instantaneous type of, of results when they press buttons and things like that. And that just didn't really describe the types of environments that, that they saw on the plant floor. Um, there's still a lot of manual data entry. There's still a lot of use of Excel spreadsheets and things like that on the plant floor. Um, and very, very dated systems. And so um, there was also, I think, a driver there to modernize um, the technologies on the platform. And that's something that we're still, I mean, that's the whole digital transformation, right? So that's still something that's going on to this day. And we'll continue to do because the plant floor is, you know, I mean, you still have 20, 25 year equipment down there. So. Yeah. And those equipment are meant to last at least 20, 25 years. Like, oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. Sorry, Andy. Go ahead. No, no, it's all good. Um, I'm just, uh, it's kind of bringing back memories. Um, and from a, almost another life back in the uh, 90s, I did um, I did systems integration, and uh, just you know you you were mentioning all of the all of the buzz acronyms MES and all of that sort of stuff, and um, it's a lot of fun. I I got I even built panels uh, back then. I was a Class A electrical contractor and, and did that mostly redesigns, but yeah yeah. Um, all of my old engineer stuff is giggling inside. Yeah. Um, so, so tell me, I'm curious about you know the new stuff. I've, um, you know, I'm familiar with the language. I understand the problems that you're trying to solve and stuff. I'm really curious how AI comes into play. Yeah. So, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned that, uh, Andy, because you're right. The problems haven't really changed that much, right? You're trying mm. to make you're trying to make more product at a higher quality at a lower price. You're trying to increase yield. You're trying to reduce scrap. I mean, that hasn't changed, right? Since the yeah. you know '90s and before. So, um, where does AI kind of play into that? It's just it's the newest tool to try to do that. Now, I will say I don't want to downplay the capabilities of AI. What we are seeing is is we are seeing um, big improvements with AI. Um, okay. We're seeing those one to two to three percent improvements and and more. I mean, up into double digit, you know, percent improvements on things like yield, on on things like scrap reduction. Which, depending on the process, that can translate to millions of dollars every year. Right. And oftentimes, these are on processes that have already maybe gone through a lot of, you know, the the Six Sigma and some of these old, you know, black belt and things like that. Some of these sure. these optimization processes 
processes that have existed for a long time, OEE. So these are relatively optimized processes sometimes, and um, and oftentimes we can see these these big improvements with AI. Wow, that's impressive. Because I, you know, I was thinking through my my early training and stuff in statistical process control, and Deming's work. You know, the six sigma you mentioned mm -hmm. and, and all. And that's it's interesting that that it can achieve that. It's probably uh, more of a secret how, and so I want to ask you. But um, it is interesting to see that because when we went through, you know, different kinds of lines, um, I remember the probably the last bit of manufacturing work I did was with a company that manufactured contact lenses, mm -hmm. and it's a multi-stage process. And a lot of people will, you know, you you know this. People will look at, um, you know, they'll see stage one is at, you know, is at ninety percent, and stage two is at ninety percent, and you know, three is at ninety percent. And they're thinking, well, our process, our lines at at ninety percent, and no, it's just over seventy, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> because you have to. These are serial processes, right? And the output of one feeds two, and the output of two feeds three, and and so on. And we had a lot, of course, you know, I, I, um, I stuff, contact lenses. We had a lot of machine vision, and you know, it was the late '90s, early 2000s versions of machine learning. Which, my goodness, that's that's jumped several generations mm -hmm. uh, since then. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, being able to, I'm just trying to imagine how AI would, you know, would help you with that. And I imagine a couple of things, and you don't have to tell me if this is how you're doing it, but extending. The um, you know, beyond the line, especially uh, with raw materials and inspections and stuff like that, and being able to do data transfer now in in the middle of that, and you're able to collect may, maybe even quality data about the the acquisition, the manufacture of your source materials for the line, and, and introduce that. And yeah. there's a lot of I, I'd imagine a lot of opportunity for correlation. Um, this particular, you know, we're seeing a drop in quality across these lines, and this particular batch is common to all of them, but not to any of the others. Those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking of. But again, I don't want you to give away too much. Oh, no, no. I'll you got a competitive I'll you, business. I'll tell you all my secrets, Andy. Um, so um, so let's address a couple things there, because uh, let's tease that apart. So um, we basically, when we talk to customers about industrial AI, we talk about AI in three different categories. Okay. One is unsupervised learning. So that's anomaly detection, right? Right. And so that's you know, basically you you hook the the model up to to the line and with no a priori knowledge and it starts monitoring the line and it can tell you when things start to go wrong, when things start okay. to go abnormal. Um, yeah. It can't tell you why, but it can just it can monitor the line. And it can start to tell you what's what's going wrong. You have to marry it with another ML technology for it to be able to tell you why it's going wrong, but it can start to tell notice that things are going wrong. So that's the first um, the first category anomaly detection or unsupervised learning. The second category is supervised learning. That makes up the bulk of what we've thought of in terms of AI over the last 20 plus years, right? So everything from computer vision to the more modern versions where you're basically, you know, you're doing real data science and you're doing feature engineering and you're, you're just, you've got to have massive amounts of data um, and you feed it in and you're going to try to do predictive quality. You're going to, you're going to try to do predictive maintenance. Um, and I listened, you know, you guys had uh, Chris Nguyen on and he was talking about some of the challenges that still exist um, with labeling and things like that, with those traditional approaches to yeah. supervised learning. Um, and ultimately, and he pointed this out too, in the end, once you've done all of that, and you know, getting that 
volume of data, clean correlated data from the plant floor, trying to get things like supply chain data too, like you talked about, upstream raw material data, and trying to get that all in one place to even be able to do that is a Herculean task in and of itself. And yeah. when you're all done, all it can ever do is it can predict a single value. Here's the number of days until this this piece of equipment's going to fail. Here's what the final quality of this batch is probably going to be. It's got, you know, here's how many days, you know, out until this weather changes. We've got a pipeline customer right now we're doing weather prediction with. Um so wow. that's that's all you can do, right, with supervised learning. The third type of learning that that we're that we're digging in pretty deeply to and really betting a lot on is is based on deep reinforcement learning. And okay. so that's what we're calling autonomous AI because DRL is a component of autonomous AI, but it's not the whole story. And so we're putting a lot of, of energy behind autonomous AI, um, mostly because it does, frankly, what our customers think AI does. Um, okay. It answers the question, what should I do next? Hmm. What's the next best decision that I could make? So it's going to monitor the state of the system. You know, if it's a if it's a controls, you know, a line, uh, it's going to monitor the state of the line, and it's going to say, okay, at this point in time, this is the next best optimal thing that you can do. Now, that's pretty cool in and of itself. But yeah. DRL has some other kind of we call them superpowers. Has some other superpowers, and one of those is that it's the only ML that can build long-term strategy. So if you go back to when DRL first was introduced on the scene. It came out of DeepMind, and it was, I mean, I don't claim anything more than they they invented it, effectively. DeepMind, I mean, it was brand new. And so it was this novel technology that came out of DeepMind, and um, its coming out party was AlphaGo when it faced off in 2016 against Lee Sedol, and, who was a, a grandmaster at Go. And it beat Lee Sedol four to one. And there actually was a documentary made about that called AlphaGo. And so when that happened, that that raised a lot of eyebrows. Like this is something different. This is something new. Then they went on to build Alpha Zero that built or that beat our best chess grand champions. Then it went on to beat our best chess software. Then they beat Alpha Star that beat our best StarCraft players. They were on to something, right? Yeah. And so so the idea then behind DRL is that strategy always wins. If you think about in order for it to beat grandmasters. Um, let's say that you know it's playing chess and it comes up and it has an opportunity to take a pawn. So if it was just a kind of a greedy ML algorithm, it's just going to grab that pawn. Well, maybe yeah. that's the best thing to do, but maybe not. If your plan right. is to win the game, <laughs> that may not be the most optimal thing. So DRL is able to build long-term strategy where it makes short-term what appear to be non-optimal decisions to get to an optimal future. And so that's why yeah. our customers are really excited about autonomous AI because of that ability. Well, that is a superpower when you mm -hmm. really when you think about it. And, and chess, I remember people poo-pooing the idea of uh, chess being the right game to prove AI's power, you know, in in the marketplace. And and when when asked a follow-up question, well, what is the right game? They would inevitably say go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And then we had, you know, we had the experience with AlphaGo. So, mm -hmm. yeah, totally, totally with you there. And thank you for uh, for sharing all of those three components of it. I just, I just wasn't aware. My my experience, I kind of jumped out of that and into IT uh, fully um, right after MESs became kind of a big thing about 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I actually, I didn't know what I was writing, but in the 90s, I wrote an MES, mm -hmm. and it was web based. Um, 
I called it plant live webs, uh, you know, trying to be cute. But back then, you know, you've got NT335 uh, server. Yeah. yeah. And you had to name the box um, PWW for it to be found on the network as PWW dot something else. And all of the stuff I had to do, gosh, you'd, you'd laugh, but it would probably bring back memories for you too. Hitting the old uh, uh, Rockwell 19.2K network and, you know, plant filled with Allen Bradleys and, uh, you know, the like the PLCs. But um, that I love what you're what you guys are doing and what you're talking about. I can't wait. And I, I understand that exciting your customers. You know, I I dreamed about this back when I was doing it. And, you know, it's really easy to see where they would as well. And when you you know, when you're talking about it, I believe you use the term autonomous mm -hmm. uh, that that deep uh that that latest third third version mm -hmm. so that that creates mixed emotions in me a little bit especially <laughs> when when you're hooking it to actuators i mean that's <laughs> those are that's terminator stuff okay right right <laughs> so what are your what are your concerns about that and how do you well, you know what do y'all think about that so let's dig into that. So so autonomous is a uh, is not a term I came up with. Um, the guy who basically invented this approach, his name is Ken Sanderson, um, and he consults with Rovis's now, but he actually wrote the book on this. It's called Designing Autonomous AI. And um, that was a term that he came up with. And, and it was very carefully chosen because he saw this as the next evolution of automation. So we had automation where right. you could program, right? And, and you've been around long enough to, you know, before that pneumatics and all that stuff and relays, yeah, yeah. And, right? So so you had automation where you could program the, these these uh, PLCs to be able to, to, to take action on their own. So then um, autonomous being that it it's, you're, it's able to actually make those decisions on its own without necessarily human intervention um, and do it in a way that's human-like. Now, okay. As far as hooking it up to controls, um, these autonomous AI projects always, and we insist on this with customers, they always go this way. We are going to implement this first as what's called a decision support system. Gotcha. So we are going to we are going to expose the decisions that the, and we call them brains. Um, so a neural network trained through autonomous AI methods, we call a brain. Um, the, these brains are going to make decisions and we're going to expose those decisions to the controllers, to the operators um, on their HMIs, their human machine interfaces down on the plant floor in their control rooms. Um, but we're not going to take direct control yet. Um, we will then monitor the decisions that the that the operators make. Um, you know, if they decide not to do what the brain says, that's okay. The brain will just say, well, you didn't listen to me, but that's okay. All right, now based on this new state of the system, I would do X. So we're gotcha. going to put it in as a decision support system. We're going to get some good runtime on it and, and measured in months. And then we're going once everyone buys in and everyone decides that, yep, this is this is safe and this is this is efficient and then this is we're getting better results. Only then will we look into wiring this thing up to where it's doing direct control. But keep in mind, it's only ever doing the same types of things that we would let an operator do. So, gotcha. so if an operator, you know, every operator um, within a control system has control parameters and they can't venture out of, out of that. So that's to help, you know, control the safety of the equipment, the safety of the people on the line. Um, so the the brain would not be able to do anything beyond what what a human operator could do. Not that there's not risk there, but yeah, absolutely. That's um, sure. that's that's what the, the, our approach to it. Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the 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 how sci-fi movies tend to start off, right? Like you know, <laughs> uh, you know, the AI gets a hold of uh, you know actuators or whatever, uh, and it can actually go ahead. But you know, I, it's it's fascinating because this is um you know, I I, I 
didn't know that there was such a silo between kind of the IT world and the OT world, right? This is not something that that I had ever really thought of, you know, and I'd kind of brushed against it about back when I was living in Richmond. I, we um, I worked for a consulting company. And they wanted to start a manufacturing kind of practice, and the guy there that they hired to run it, nice guy, he um, he was smart because he would just go through like he was a wealth of knowledge. Like, you know, it was just kind of like, I think somehow it, the, the topic at lunch came up with how is this made or how is something made? Mm -hmm. And he, he actually worked on the building, the assembly lines to make that particular thing. And we were just, everybody at the table were like, Whoa, like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. So, so one of the things you mentioned was kind of, you know, beyond, um, um, figuring out like kind of the supply chain, like further back. One of the things when big, when blockchain was still very much a highly hyped technology uh, was the idea that people could, um, that you could track, you know, your food or your whatever from farm to table, right? Because they would scan it in using, using some kind of block ledger, blockchain based ledger. Is that still a thing or is it kind of, the hype and buzz around that technology kind of died with, with, um... yeah, I, you know, so I get asked about blockchain both internally every, every so many years, someone at Robus is like, are we looking at the blockchain? Should we be doing anything there? And then, you know, I, I watch, you know, the news and I watch, um, uh, you know, projects like um, Azure's got a blockchain service and IBM had a blockchain service and stuff. And and what I am not seeing in the industry is I'm not seeing widespread adoption of that. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things, one of the problems that blockchain solved was um, de decentralization, um, uh, no centralized authority, and and being able to, to um, trust the data in the ledger without any kind of centralized authority signing off on it, right? We, it's a problem in in our industry. It's kind of a problem looking for a solution or a solution looking for a problem because if we get, you know, our customers get um, information on the raw materials, you know, upstream information on the raw materials from from their vendors and things like that, from their suppliers. Um, and I'm not sure that they really are. I mean, they're lucky if they're getting it in a format. I've got a customer. This is a life science customer, and they get upstream raw material information still in PDFs. PDFs that were scanned from paper, and this is what they get as alongside their raw material mm. that they're using in their process. So what do they do? They retest it all anyway. They retest those raw materials. They don't necessarily even trust some of the upstream data that's coming. It basically, to get to that future, it would take a level of coordination, of buy-in, of adoption that, I mean, we'd be lucky, like we, we don't, I, to wish for that, like I would wish that we just have electronic, <laughs> you know, electronic information coming from upstream suppliers that we could actually pull data from uh, in an automated fashion, and I'd be thrilled. So I think that it, it's it's so far out, but then again, it, it I don't know that it solves the problems in this particular industry that that it wants to try to solve. I think that our customers pretty much trust the the data coming from their suppliers, or they retest it themselves anyway. Um, and so it's just, I don't know. Yeah. So I, we, to answer your question, no, I don't think we've seen a big adoption of blockchain in, in supply chain, and I'm not sure that we're driving towards that type of a future right now. That's, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it kind of, it's a lot like, you know, 
VR, right? Like it kind of starts and then fizzles out, and then starts and then yep. fizzles out. This yep. the blockchain technology kind of seems like it's going to follow the same path, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the the alleged fraud and all sorts of the other shenanigans that are going on in the coin space probably right. sullied it, and it probably it would probably make I think a lot of companies uncomfortable to even t touch or even utter the word blockchain. Um, but that's another that's a human yeah. problem, not a technology problem. Right. But uh, that 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 explains it, because like I've noticed that, too, like, um, you know, it comes up and then it goes away. So yeah. that kind of makes sense. And, and you um, know, I, in your in your description there of, of people sending scans and PDFs, um, seeing I've seen that and other uh, as Frank described them shenanigans too happening there. It, you know, in your description of it, you mentioned the um, decentralized authority. I'm, I'm not sure that's a great idea uh, for some of these manufacturing things, especially if it's food or some critical materials, maybe the the material they use to um, you know, strengthen steel for bridges and, you know, critical infrastructure like that. I, I think I might like a centralized authority to to have their fingers in that and i'm not a huge fan of governance of any kind so you know i am i'm not an anarchist but <laughs> the less the better okay and but you know that seems like a perfect justification to having that of course just like with blockchain that can be um, corrupted as well so i'm not really sure what the answer is i i love i love retesting it yourself i think that's a perfect solution yeah, I mean it. You know, it's it's in some cases uh, uh, inefficient because you're repeating things that have already been done. But to your point, like you want centralization in this particular use case. You want the company to sign off on it and say, "No, I'm saying that this is right." Um, there's also some logistical types of things. I've thought about it. I mean, there's lo logistical problems with it too. So somebody fat fingers something. Well, now it's in the blockchain. So now it's you can't change it by design. So now you got to have this mechanism to go back and and revise it. And I mean, it just, again, you know, it's interesting. So we, we, um, there was some, um, enthusiastic folks within Rovis uh, a couple years ago that were talking about, you know, what if we, what if we had an internal blockchain and we had, you know, kind of a Rovi coin that we could mint and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, one of the, the challenges with it is, is that, well, not even the challenge with it, but so so my answer is this, like, have you ever gone into any of the system, the internal systems that Rovisys uses, and have you ever questioned any of the values in any of them? And the answer is, well, no, not really. Like, you know, if, if, if you know, we use a, a payroll system. So if the payroll system says it's, this is my payroll, then, you know, or this is, this is this, or there, you know, any of the, my, the expenses system, if it says, you know, that this is what I expensed two weeks ago, you know, I don't question that that value changed at all. Yeah. And so, if you did, and if you did question it, that that's other problems. There's bigger problems, right. right? So, so all blockchain does is it it makes it so that you don't have to question the validity of that two weeks later, two months later, two years later. I mean, but I don't question those systems as it exists anyway. So, what would be the yeah. point in in you know? So, if you wanted to do a Rovi coin, and we're starting to look at kind of gamification and rewards and things like that at Rovisys, and that's all great. But if you want to do that, then just put a database together and just say this is the value that you. These are the rewards you have. Nobody's going to question the the value of that. You don't need blockchain to to do that. So right. um, simpler solutions are sometimes better. Yeah, yeah, and I'd also imagine too. Let's just say that there was some shenanigans going on with your supply chain. 
you probably store the the, the scanned PDFs, right? And for then sure. <laughs> if 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 something were to hit the fan, you, there would be an audit process that would go through and kind of That's very right. detailed. Um, right. Yeah, for sure. And and I mean, th the thing about it is, is that we talk a lot about tech. I obviously, in, in the role that I have, I talk a lot about technology. I talk about AI, but these are still people problems. If you had a repeated right. issue with a with a supplier, you're gonna drop that supplier. Like it's still, a, you know what I mean? It's still a relationship and people type of of business, even with all the technology layered on top of it. So, um, you know, it's about building trust. Um, and, you know, my customers, you know, many of them are upstream of, of other manufacturers that are downstream of them. So right. same kind of thing. Like, you know, we, one of the things we talk about as a metric is not just, you know, increased quality, and increased yield and things like that, but it's customer trust and, and, uh, and customer satisfaction, their customers, making sure that their customers uh, continue to trust them to deliver a high quality product um, on time, you know, at, at a competitive price. Um, and all of that is a human thing, you know, that's a that's a human type of uh, relationship type of issue, right? Yeah, really is. Um, there, I remember uh, you know walking through this with a couple of customers of mine. I'm still doing consulting and stuff, and we talk about the reputation of the data, and and that folds right into you know your mm -hmm. customer trust. And you, what it came down to in a couple of systems that we implemented is those five stars everybody's familiar with the five-star rankings now and that's mm -hmm. just a that's a, a collection of data points you know mm -hmm. that then you do aggregation on and um and and move forward and back with that and it you know i've heard some interesting talk about in especially in manufacturing about rolling that you know all the way back up to the plants and i imagine ai would uh would enable that a lot of it is you you kind of alluded to the you know the the massive amounts of data Frank and I joke about the data engineering part. We can skip over it with a sentence that we like to repeat, and it's first you get the data. <laughs> yes, which is, you can tell you're talking to a data scientist or like an AI researcher when they say, "Well, first we got the data." Yeah, like, exactly. you know, how many thousands of like man hours or person hours? Like, is that like? Yeah, so much hand waving <laughs> happens in this field around that sentence. Yes, and, uh, real and just, quick, my, real quick. Go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to say a quick story on that one. So I was talking to, a, this was um, about a year ago, I was talking to a semiconductor manufacturer. And so I'm giving them the whole industrial AI pitch. And so then I, you know, it, towards the end, I always change gears and I go, okay, let's talk about your OT data infrastructure. Okay. Because that, you know, that is the enabler for anything like this. And and I said, so can you describe to me kind of what you have? Well, we've got a kind of a bunch of of disconnected work cells and they're not really networked together. And each one has a little data uh, database that's you know doing data logging on each one and i go oh okay <laughs> and <laughs> and so then they turn around and pose a question to me they go now these ai algorithms do they know how to go out to all of that equipment and pull the data out of all of those disconnected wow. databases i said no <laughs> not at all <laughs> like, not even close <laughs> yeah so yeah so but then, first you have to get the data right yeah <laughs> so then the conversation pivots as it inevitably does with a lot of these conversations. I always say I'm the bearer of bad news because I go into, everyone's excited at the table to talk about AI. And so then I have to pivot and I go, okay, we got to talk about your OT data infrastructure. We got, there's a lot of work to do to connect all of these disconnected skids, to pull all the data out and, and to put it into a system. We typically use historians, which are time series databases used on the plant floor. We, you know, to pull all that process data together, correlate it, 
and and actually be able to do anything with it before you can even really talk about trying to do something with AI. So, and, and I'd imagine you you encounter customers at least from time to time that not only aren't aware of that, and it's I mean it's our gig, so we we get it. Sure. But um, they they had no idea, you know, yeah. the amount of work involved in getting that going. Uh, one one thing I'd like to just throw out, and it's a uh, kind of a hard question, but in one concern with the integration of data and, and maybe driving some of the getting upstream data from suppliers and maybe sharing data downstream with customers is, you know, is the integrity of that data. And, you know, what happens when the communication systems or the systems that gather those metrics, even what happens when they fail? Or get compromised. Yeah, yeah even better, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, these, these are, these are frankly hard problems and 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 I don't know that I have a solution. I don't know that the industry yet has a, a solution for that. Um, yeah. I've seen some of the governance tools that are out there um, that tried to build um, kind of almost chains of custody around data. Um, where did yeah. this where did this field originally come from? How many other databases did it jump through before it got to where it's at? Um, those are really admirable projects and and I I mean I I think that the, that the the effort is worth it. Uh, but that's a really tough thing to do. And and the problem is, is that you start to stumble into where these projects oftentimes go off the rails. And that's that, you know, are they are they being pushed down from corporate? So is this right. a corporate mandate, right? And so they're gonna they're gonna they have to maintain these databases and that governance tool uh, with an iron fist to be able to track all that and the custody and all that. The problem with that, and that's we've seen a lot of that. So those are those are the IT departments then, where if you want to make the the simplest change, you want to add one column, you want to, you know, just make a, a minor change to a data type or something like that, add two more de um, decimal points or something like that. It's a help desk ticket. It's a it's a long process to get that through IT to actually get that change made because they've got to control yeah. it. Well, right. unfortunately, on the plant floor, they're not used to that. They're right. they're much more pragmatic. They're used to thing being able to make changes quickly because they got to keep the plant running. That's exactly. that's their that's their primary driver. So the so the the it's you know when you talk about these differences between IT and OT and how they kind of talk past each other, it's because fundamentally their 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 motivations are different. The plant yeah. floor is all about keeping the plant running twenty four seven. It's got it. You got to keep it running. And meanwhile, IT is looking at things like security, drivers like security, and they're looking at drivers like governance and and data integrity and backups and, and things like that yeah. and 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 isolation and and minimal secure or um, you know minimal permissions and things like that. You know and and so that's what they're looking at. And so. Um, so the opposite of that, where IT has an, a kind of a stranglehold on everything, is those great grassroots projects, those bottom-up projects where you know we call them skunk work projects, where yeah. you know you've got somebody who's got a really good idea, an engineer on the line or whatever, an operator, and they want to hack together something quick in Excel, or maybe they've got a little bit of coding and they're pipe maybe Python or something, and they're they're you know they're they're kind of just playing with the data and they're they're trying different things and they're getting good results. And that can, that can oftentimes result in systems, and we've seen it because we've been the ones to then scale those systems out, and we, you know, we build it up and we harden it, and then we scale it out to a bunch of sites. But those oftentimes, those those um, grassroots projects are um, just so powerful, and so, but you lose that if you have such a stranglehold on the data, and right, so that's. Right. 
I mean, I, there's no good answer, I guess is what I'm saying. Like it's, it's always going to be a, a balance there and there's always going to be kind of tension there between yeah. having that control and having that autonomy to try different things and be able to play with that data. Yep. Yeah. That's as old as it. Right. Um, yes. You know, it really is. And, and as old as manufacturing too. Mm -hmm. So, and you're right. That's a, I, I don't have a solution for it either. I, I've always just, it's always communication and maybe is my first best operation, you know, just try to get everybody in the room and let's talk through, you know, this really killer idea and the fact that IT wants to do it too, but it's going to take them nine months. And yeah, it's not I don't know. because they're bad. Right. They just, right. they're going to, they're going to try and harden it and stuff from the beginning and Here's someone yes. with an idea to save the company money and or make them money at the same time. And yeah. Yeah. I don't know it. if I don't yeah. know if you're in your experiences, if you've had this experience of kind of being the marriage counselor at the table and you've got IT on one side of the table and OT at the other, and you're kind of trying to, you know, you know, play both. So we we find ourselves yeah. in that position a lot. I can so. imagine, especially with AI. I, I can't imagine trying to introduce something that complex uh, into into any enterprise, much less manufacturing. Yeah. So, cool I mean, stuff. most enterprises really struggle with just good old fashioned data governance, right? Like, right. Right. I can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine the level of complexities. Uh, the marriage counselor thing is uh, probably a good analogy. That is. Yeah. That's a great and, analogy. And and I would say from the data governance thing, I, I guess I didn't answer your original question. Does AI help or can it somehow help in that regard? I could envision, and maybe there are companies out there right now. There's probably a startup right now doing this exact thing, where you kind of let things loose and you let people, you know, kind of explore the data and things like that. And then you have an AI system that comes in after the fact and does all, finds all of those chains of custody, goes in, in a way, the way my semiconductor customer wanted it to, goes out and actually looks and, and is able to find the connections between those data points and, and basically builds that type of a, a scheme, a map after the fact, a governance map right. after, after the fact, so that at least now you can have something up on the board that says, okay, this is where this data point comes from in this, in this Power BI display or something like that. Yeah, so. that's deep. That's and there's some, there's some interesting open source uh, projects. There's one from Microsoft built basically by implementing the open source uh, Apache Atlas. Okay. And then there's, there's Purview and it's special, you know, it's very, um, it's very focused on uh, data governance and lineage, especially. Mm -hmm. um, and the neatest thing about it is that it'll go out and run scheduled scans. So if you've got a very volatile place, you know, you got, dozens of people doing changes to the data entry schemas even. Mm -hmm. um, and, and some businesses are like that. Um, it'll go out and detect that and it will, um, you know, it'll update a visualization of it. And the combine the combination of that visualization and the ability to update it without and, and do that and automate it. It sounds mm -hmm. simple, but mm -hmm. that is huge. You know, and before that, yeah, you know, I don't know how people did it. I, we we you know, rolled our own uh, schema scans and stuff like that and looking for changes in schemata, drifting schemas and, and the like. But um, having an AI do that, that's a thought. I had never, I hadn't put those two together. And I wonder if, you know, I kind of wonder if somebody at, uh, in the open source community, uh, you know, following the Atlas uh, open source project or and or uh, someone working on Purview hadn't thought of that. Because Microsoft is trying to put AI everywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, they got that big hook into OpenAI. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they're trying to put it everywhere they can. And 
you know, it's going to be, there's going to be some interesting outcomes from that. And that's me being pessimistic. Yeah. Well, and every, everybody's adding a co-pilot to everything, right? They're right. Not, mm-hmm. Even if they right. don't call it a co-pilot, I know, uh, I know there's a project coming from, from Red Hat that, that is going to be a co-pilot like type thing. Um, can't yeah. talk about it, but you know, it's, yeah. um, it's interesting how that has, how AI, particularly language generation has changed. I don't want to say society because well, I think we're still a little early on that. Culture, it's impacting culture. I would oh, say. Oh, totally. And the, you know, I think the thing that we're seeing right now and is this has just happened since November, is right. the idea that, and, and I get it. I get. I want to first start off by saying that I see nothing but best intentions, mm-hmm. and we know which road that paves. Okay, so there's that. But the the idea that you can remove bias and it be, a, you know, and have no consequences. And it's like when you remove bias, you are introducing bias. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the bias you want, but don't play. It's the exactly bias you what can't, you're doing. The bias you can't see is still bias. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, it's it's a very easy trap to fall into. And I'm an engineer at heart. I'm like. You know, I, I can fix it. I know I can, and I can't always. Uh, you know, and it's I I never hit my goal, but I can get close enough to it to where I can, you know, check the box and make the customer happy. But it, it's it's a hard thing, and AI has this. I mean, it's all over the place in AI. And the thing is, when you start letting the machine in your you know in your autonomous uh, solution there, when you start letting the machine make these decisions. I got to imagine somebody's got to be reading logs or something, you know, or at least looking for it almost, I would almost take your anomaly detection and run it against that. (laughs) Right. So, so validation. So when we do these, let's, so let's talk about the autonomous AI projects. So when we do these autonomous AI projects, validation is, is absolutely a key part of, of those projects. Um, One of the other things that we've been talking a lot about data, but one of the interesting things about uh, DRL and autonomous AI is that it actually learns by doing, not by data. So it actually learns by SIM. Um, And that's been kind of interesting because we're seeing this renaissance of SIM um, in in customers that are wanting to adopt uh, deep reinforcement learning. you know, SIM has been around for a long time in our industry, but there were limits to what you could do with it, right? I mean, you could sure. you could spend a lot of you could pour a lot of time trying to build a, a high fidelity SIM, but then what are you going to do with it? You could you could do use it for training, and you could maybe make some capital uh, expense uh, expenditure type of decisions based on on the SIM, but the, it was limited in what you could actually do. Now we're suddenly seeing all these. Uh, all of our customers who are have a renewed interest in SIM because they want to get to a DRL future. And in order to do that, you have to, the, it has to be able to play, right? right so right. how did, how did alpha go and alpha zero? I mean, they played against themselves. We, you know, they were taught the basic rules of chess and of, of these games, and then they played against themselves to get better and better. And so that's what it does is it plays on that part of the process that's been simulated okay. and it, it does it in a matter of hours. But by the time it's done, it's like, it's a hundred year old operator. It's done and seen <laughs> everything. 
And we're right. going to throw at it. We're going to throw at it scenarios. We're going to say, okay, what happens when this machine goes down? Well, what happens when this machine is not running at full capacity? Well, what happens when you get a hot batch that comes in from this customer that's demanding something by tomorrow? How do you adapt? And so we let it learn all of these edge cases and try all these different things. And yeah, it might blow up the plan a hundred times, but it's going to do it in simulation and it's going to learn <laughs> and we build rewards and penalties in. So if you do that, you get a big penalty. So we okay. build that all in so that it's seen all these types of things. But that's, what's been really interesting is this, this kind of renaissance of simulation um, because of, of the adoption of these DRL uh, techniques. Wow. We could probably talk for another two hours, but um, I want to be respectful <laughs> of your time. This has been a fascinating conversation, no doubt. Um, so we're going to switch to the um, uh, questions. Yeah. And uh, I'll start the first one. How, how did you find your way into data? Did you find data or did data find you? Yeah, so um, so I've got a computer science background. So I, I have a, a CS degree from the University of Akron and knew nothing about manufacturing or industrial, wasn't even on my radar. Uh, I really liked the show How It's Made, but that was about yeah. the extent of my exposure to manufacturing um, until I started at Rovisys. Um, and so that's when I really got uh, introduced to the, the concept of plant floor data. And what was really interesting was the volumes of data that you see. And, and um, there's certain industries, you know, finance and things, but there's certain industries where you get those types of volumes of data, but manufacturing is one of them. If you like data and you like just loads of data. And as I've gone through my career, you know, when I started, you know, a piece of equipment might be able to get you, you know, 10 to 15, 20 data points or something like that. Now, every piece of equipment on the plant floor is smart. They, it can give you 100, 500 <laughs> data points, you know, from every piece of equipment. So now the the volumes of data, you know, when I started was, you know, maybe 10,000 data points or something like that. Now, you know, typical projects are in the hundreds of thousands of data points, if not millions. Um, some of the data center customers we have, you know, it's millions of data points because everything in a data center is smart. Um, and so it it found me, but I was absolutely uh, fascinated by it. I was fascinated by these historians, these time series databases that use lossy compression to store all of the process data coming up from the plant floor. I just thought that was so cool. And so, yeah, and I've been hooked on it ever since. Very cool. cool. So what's your favorite part of your current gig? Yeah, so I've worn a lot of hats at Rovisys. Uh, you talked, uh, Andy, about building MESs. I did the same thing early in my career before it really had a name. We didn't really talk about them as MESs, but now now we've yeah. got a term for it. But um, so I've had a lot of worn a lot of hats. But um, in uh, 2019, I became the director of, of this new division, Industrial AI, and um, that's been the coolest part of my journey so far because you know we said you know the direction to me was kind of like Rovisys needs to be doing this. Uh, figure it out, <laughs> nice. go out there, find, find out what the state of the art is, figure out, you know, what the mix of, of folks you need to make this a success. Um, you know, find customers, go talk to customers. That's where you learn the most is talking to customers and figure out what they need. And, and, um, so yeah, I mean, just the creating this, this division, um, and then, you know, it, it's never really changed though, in my career, like the delight of, customers, you know, how excited they get uh, when we deliver a system like this to them and and they really see it working and, and you know, it's it's giving them really, really outstanding results. They, it's just so exciting. It's so cool. So my serial entrepreneur Spidey senses started tingling there. What you what you did, I think, was almost like given the opportunity to build a company That's inside right. of the company. 
That's right. That's yeah. That's killer. That's great. That's that's, that's cool. and I mean just a little plug for kind of how we do things at Robesis. That's very much the way that we do things. So okay. so we are thirteen different divisions, but we really operate like thirteen different small businesses. And so we're given a ton of autonomy and how we make decisions. And we know that we've got this big company behind us. If if we fail, we fail. And so we fall right. back into the arms of, of our, our company. But um, yeah, that's really the the approach that, that we take at, at Rovis's. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, third question and first of a couple of fill in the blanks. When I'm not working, I enjoy blank. So, um, my wife and I have a little place up on Lake Erie. And so that's our happy place. And we go and we take our kids up there and it's just fantastic. And I sit back and I have a scotch in my hand and I look out at this gigantic body of water. It's still, I've, we've had it for years, but just looking out at it, it's just hard to comprehend how, how big it is and, and, you know, kind of how small we are in comparison, but, you know, just to kind of sit and reflect and enjoy, enjoy life. Very cool. The next uh, complete the sentence. I think the coolest thing in technology today is. So I'm going to say autonomous AI because <laughs> it's what I'm working on. Um, yeah, I just I think this is I, I mean, I've been on record saying I think this is the next generation of industrial AI. I think this is going to move the needle. This is going to be the big when we look back, this is going to be the big inflection point um, uh, of this industrial 4.0 movement. Like I think nice. that industrial AI built around DRL, I think is going to be that big because I've seen those kinds of results. Wow. Um, complete this sentence, the third and final of that type. I look forward to the day when I can use technology to blank. So I'm going to go away from my job and I'm going to talk about, I look forward to when these personal digital personal assistants like Siri, when they actually work. <laughs> I, my friends and family get, they, they crack up because nobody gets more frustrated with these systems than I do. When I can't, when Siri can't understand a simple request, when Alexa can't understand the simplest of requests. And you know, it's, it's frustrating because these were billed as, you know, we're going to make the road safer because you're going to be able to keep your eyes on the road and you're going to be able to, and when it can't understand the simplest request and I'm having to pick up my phone, not that I ever do that while I'm driving, but I have to pick up my phone and I got to figure out how to text somebody or fix what, you know, that it couldn't understand. It's so frustrating. And I, I always turn to whoever's in the car. I'm like, billions of dollars have been spent on this and this is what we have to show for it. So I cannot wait. I do think that um, generative AI, you know, incorporating some of that, I think maybe is going to find, hopefully turn the tables on that and, and, and we'll see some big stepwise improvements in that, but I cannot wait. <laughs> I totally so, understand. So unimpressive. I, to <laughs> I totally understand. In fact, my wife knows now. She's like, oh, you must be using voice transcription because like there are times <laughs> when I'll just say, I think the other day I said something like, uh, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I remember what, what it heard was something like, thanks, bro. And um, <laughs> like, I didn't say that. Like, where did that uh, come from? Yeah. And then I remember one time my kids are named Jake and Ben and um, I told the the car once is that I have I I, to, I want to let them, my wife know that I picked them up, and it heard I have Jake and Batman, <laughs> which which Batman really liked that one. I'll just say yeah that. Well, yeah I was gonna say yeah that's not that's not a bad thing. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, our, our next thought that we, we request here is to share something different about yourself. But we do remind all our guests it's a family podcast. And we want to keep <laughs> yeah. that clean rating. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So my wife and I love roller coasters, um, and so we have we we did some estimation and we figured um, each of us has ridden over a hundred rides easily, um, probably wow. more on roller coasters in our lifetime, um, and we're not slowing down every year. So, I live in Northeast Ohio, and so if you grew up in Northeast Ohio, you always know about Cedar Point. Uh, up in Sandusky, Ohio, um, roller coaster capital of the world. They have some absolutely just amazing, amazing roller coasters, huge, fast. Um, and we love the faster, the bigger, the better. And so, and we raised our kids to be roller coaster nuts. So um, we've been taking them ever since they were little. And um, and so now they're they're super into it. And so, you know, in uh, this, the, our little house there actually is in Huron, which overlooks Cedar Point. So we can actually see Cedar Point from, a, and we're about 20 minutes when we're up at our lake house. And so this summer, once again, we'll buy our season passes and we'll, we'll be up there with the kids, you know, multiple times a, a month um, riding coasters. So nice. we love it. That's cool. All right. Um, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Yeah. So if you go to rovacis.com uh, slash AI, uh, so R-O-V as in Victor, I-S-Y-S.com forward slash AI, that takes you to the industrial AI portion of the Rovacis website, or you can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm Brian, B-R-Y-A-N-D-E-B-O-I-S. Uh, you can look me up on LinkedIn and, uh, yeah, love to connect with anyone. Cool. And do you do audiobooks? I do. Awesome. So do you have a recommendation? I absolutely do. And hopefully this will be one that resonates with you guys. Um, one of my now favorite books, uh, Andy Weir's, um, Project Hail Mary. Um, if you guys haven't read it, it is absolutely fantastic. It gets me excited. I've read it a couple times now. I've had my son read it now. Um, but um, in particular, the Audible production of it um, has some very unique things that they had to do. I don't want to give away. I don't want to spoil too much. But they had to do some really interesting things um, uh, with the uh, with the Audible uh, production of it. So it's it's so cool. Uh, you'll be hooked. It sounds like they're making a movie out of it now, which it absolutely oh, wow. does, does deserve a movie. But it's such a cool book if you guys haven't read it. Well, that's I, cool. Have, Frank, have you have you read listened to that? No, I haven't, but I'm definitely so going to add it to my I, queue. I did. My uh, my older son, Stevie Ray, he uh he he's a big Andy Weir fan and he said he was like, "Dad, you got to drop everything and listen to this book." Yeah. And he was right. And it was, you know, it's hard to say based on The Martian. You know, yeah. it's hard hard to make the statement. The Martian was awesome. Yes. Hands down, awesome. This book is better. Tops it. Yes. yes. 100% agree with that. <laughs> Andy Weir outdid himself on this. And um, again, I can't give away too much, but the Audible production in particular, what they did was so clever and it's really cool how totally they agree. how they pulled it off. All right. I definitely got to check that out. <laughs> I have, I actually have one extra credit this month. So um, yeah. And if you are wanting to get in on the audio Audible uh, party, you can go to thedatadrivenbook.com or thedatadrivenbook.com if you prefer that pronunciation. Um, and you'll get one free audiobook um, and on us. And if you decide to continue with the subscription, which it's it's very addictive and it's hard not to, uh, we'll get a little bit of a kickback, and that's how they support the show. 
Yep. Also, I verified that it was working since we're having one of those days. I ran the link just now. The uh, thedatadrivenbook.com will take you to an audible trial. Good. That's working. That's, that's It's always good to hear <laughs> when something works, especially this week. Um, so um, with um, with that, anything else you'd like to add, Brian? No, it's it's been awesome. Great talking to you guys. Appreciate yeah, likewise. Same here, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. been great. All right, and I'll let Bailey finish the show. Thank you for tuning in to the Data Driven Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we kindly ask that you take a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is invaluable to us and helps us to continually improve and provide the best possible content and experience to our listeners.